Have you ever been tempted? Of course, you say. Have you ever thought, why did I even think that? Or have you ever been dismayed that you're still struggling with the same things? Have you ever echoed the verse from our opening hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. If we are tempted, we are in good company because Jesus was also tempted. And by looking at his temptation, we will gain insight on how we can deal with ours. We read of it briefly in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. It takes place right after his baptism. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the desert, And he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. So at Jesus' baptism, the Spirit came on Jesus, it filled Jesus, and then immediately the Spirit drove him into the desert to be tempted. And notice Jesus obeyed immediately what the Spirit was leading him to do. And that's a message for us, because sometimes we delay our obedience, or we argue with the Lord and say, well, someday I'll repent of that. Jesus obeyed right away. And so the Spirit drove him into the desert to be tempted. Why? Well, Jesus came as the second Adam. He came as our representative. And so he would be tempted as Adam was tempted. Adam was tempted in the garden. He had everything he could possibly need. Every fruit and tree in the garden was was his. He had a wife who thought, man, you're the only man in the universe for me. (laughs) He had everything. And yet, he was vulnerable to temptation. And here, Jesus is in the desert fasting 40 days, and he is literally starving to death. He is vulnerable. And this is where Satan tempts him. Jesus was also the second Israel. The first Israel was called out of Egypt. The first Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea. The first Israel was tested in the desert. And now, the second Israel, Jesus, would be called out of Egypt. He would pass through the waters of baptism. He too would be tested in the wilderness. Mark mentions that he was with wild beasts. So in that desolate place, there would be mountain lions, wolves, not wolves, but coyotes, jackals. And Mark includes this in his gospel because he wrote in Rome during the persecution of Nero when Christians were being given to wild beasts in the arenas of Rome. So Mark mentions, your Savior too was tested by being exposed to wild beasts. Mark does not tell us how Jesus was tempted by Satan, but Matthew and Luke do, and so I will refer to Matthew's gospel to fill in the blanks that Mark leaves out. That passage is 
printed for you in your bulletins. And so I'm going to read Matthew 4, 1 through 3. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now this temptation is not about food. It's about whether Jesus will obey God. But hunger and physical desire is where Satan tempts Jesus because this is where he is most vulnerable. And Satan also uses our legitimate desires to tempt us. In fact, many of our temptations appeal to our bodily and uh, psychological needs. Truly felt desires like connection, sex, food, comfort. But sin seeks these to be fulfilled outside of God's will. This is how Jesus was tempted. He was very hungry, and he had the power to actually provide food for himself. But he was there to do the Father's will. And his Father's will was that he fast and that he rely on the Lord for provision. And so Satan was testing Jesus' allegiance by appealing to his flesh. Satan will test our allegiance by appealing to our flesh. So Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now notice Jesus responds with God's word. He will respond with God's word every time he is tempted. And notice he speaks the word out loud. The Greek will use the word rhema for this, which means the spoken word. It's the same word that the Apostle Paul uses in Ephesians when he tells us how to battle uh, Satan. He says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the rhema, the spoken word of God. And so we need to know God's word well enough to recall it and speak it to ourselves. Neither do you even say, speak it out loud. But I find that if we've been in in church for a long time, we pretty much know God's Word. And the issue there is not that we do not know it, it's the issue of whether we believe God, that He will satisfy us more than sin will. Jesus realized that Life was more than fulfilling physical needs. The more important was fulfilling and doing God's will, because in doing that, God will supply our needs. Second temptation, verse 5 in Matthew. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. So, There are always lots of people around the temple, and there's the pinnacle of the temple. It's way up high, and Satan is tempting Jesus to throw himself down from there. And then the enemy quotes Scripture. The enemy knows Scripture, but now he's twisting 
the meaning and the application of it. Saying, you know, if you throw yourself down, doesn't the scripture say the angels will bear you up and take care of you? Prove you're the son of God and do it. And what Satan was doing was provoking Jesus. If he had done it, he would have acted out of pride. And uh, we we act out of pride also, do we not? And pride takes many forms, like, I have to be right. I can never apologize for being wrong. I think myself better than them, or I won't hang out with them because they're not in my group, or I'm afraid of what people will think if I do hang out with them. Or we project a, a false religious or righteous image, or we edit our behavior and speech and witness because, um, you know, we really don't want to, you know, be too overt about our Christianity. We're afraid of what people will think. And the devil knows what kind of pride in us he can appeal to. It was about six years ago when I had my first interview with the search committee at Eastminster. And so the very first question out of the bat was this, are you a prideful man? I thought, is this a trick question? Because if I said, no, I'm not prideful, then I would have been prideful. And so I just answered as honestly as I could. And I said, I care about what you think of me. I want you to think well of me. That's pride. So yes, there is pride in me. But my children and my former church, or my church would not say I'm a prideful man. And when I'm wrong, I can admit it. I can apologize and ask for forgiveness. Um, and I do try to humble myself when I realize that I'm prideful. So that was my answer, and I guess it was okay because here I am. <laughs> but all of us have an area of pride, multiple areas of pride, that the evil one could appeal to. And when we give in to it, we sin. Now here's how Satan appealed to Jesus' pride. Jesus came, and he did miracles to prove he was the Son of God. And now Satan is saying, prove you're the Son of God. But he was testing God in order to do that. That's what Satan wanted him to do. Now, what does it mean to test God? We get a clue of it by how Jesus answers the evil one. He says, it is written... Do not put the Lord your God to the test. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, where it reads, Do not put the Lord to the test, as they did at Massa. And so what happened at Massa? Well, the Israel's wandering through the wilderness. They come to a place where there is no water. And they say, Can the Lord provide water for us? Is the Lord even here? See, they said that out of unbelief. They were provoking the Lord. They were putting God to the test. And we put God to the test when we want God to prove himself to us. Or we 
put the Lord to the test when we continue in our disobedience, wondering, I'll keep doing this until the Lord does something about it. Or maybe we know where God draws a line and we go right up to the line. We're like children when we do that. I raised four kids. I know what it's like to be tested. There was a time in our family's life when we had three kids in a bench seat on a, in, a, in a minivan. And uh, inevitably, some kid would start poking his sister. Quit touching, you know, then she says, don't touch me, and I don't touch your sister, right? And then he would do this. Hold it one inch away. That legalist was going right up to the line saying if I do something about it, even though he broke the spirit of the law. But you know, we test the Lord too. And Jesus says, do not put the Lord to the test. Because you see, sin has its effect in us. We may not see it, but it has its effect. And every sin brings some degree of death to our soul, and we wonder why we feel dead inside. Every degree of sin um, interferes with our experience of the presence of God, and we wonder why we're not uh, sensing him or why we feel empty. Every sin moves us farther away, not him away, but us. And then we wonder why he feels distant. And then sometimes he's just laying trap after trap after trap so that he can catch us. I have rabbits that eat my garden. And uh, Lionel loaned me some rabbit traps, and he told me they love great grains or granola, right? So, you know, I put, you know, the granola along the trails where the rabbits are, and <laughs> sure along, well, they come along and they eat the great grains, and finally they go into the little cage where uh, they get caught, right? So Satan does. I, I take mine to various fields around Wichita, but Satan aims to destroy us. And so do not test the Lord. We never benefit from testing the Lord. Here's the third temptation. We read about it in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. This was the temptation of wealth and power. Basically, Satan was saying to Jesus, who came to establish a kingdom on the earth, I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. And then Satan gives away what he really wants. I want to be worshipped. Nowadays, Satan would say, I'll give you the election. Wealth and power, they are seductive because, well, those things can bring us what we think we want. And wealth is not a sin in and of itself. God says, I give you the ability to produce wealth. So God doesn't give us the ability to do something that's inherently evil. 
And power, that's the ability to project our, our will or our ability to act, and we can act for good, and so power can be good. But when wealth and power become more important than God, then we will do whatever to gain wealth and compromise to do that. And if we want power more than God, then we will step on ever on whomever and crush whoever in order to gain it. Satan offered wealth and power to get what he wanted, which was worship. And what a coup if he could get it from the Son of God. There's other things Satan wants. He hates God, so he tries to destroy those who belong to him. Or he tries to discredit God by ruining our witness. Always be up to what Satan's trying to do in your life. He either wants worship, or he wants to discredit God by discrediting your witness, or he wants to destroy you. Now, Jesus held God as supreme, and so he quoted scripture. Away from me, Satan. You shall worship the Lord and him only. Now, notice how Jesus deals with all of these temptations. It is written. It is written. It is written. But he not only spoke it, he believed it. Our problem is not so much that we don't know God's word. We don't believe it sufficiently to really believe that God can satisfy us more than sin. Keep in mind also that temptation appeals to our physical and legitimate desires. We legitimately desire love, comfort, connection, security, worth, influence. Jesus saw that God has a better way of meeting these needs than temptation or the world or that Satan does. Jesus desired God more than sin. And that's one of our marks of discipleship. I desire Jesus more than sin. Jesus also lived a life of surrender to God's will. We too need to surrender to his will. And I believe we even have to surrender our temptations to God's will. Sometimes when we're tempted, we want to run away from God. I say when you're tempted, you run to God. He knows what they are. So just say, here's my temptation, Lord. I'm going to leave it with you. I surrender it to you. After Jesus withstood the testing of the devil, the devil left him. The other gospel writers will say he left him for a more opportune time, Satan will come again in the Garden of Gethsemane, again when Jesus was vulnerable. But the angels now came and attended to him. The word in in the Greek can be they waited on him like a servant waits on a table. I think they brought Jesus food. He was starving to death. And they literally provided the food that he needed. And thus, in this way, the psalm Psalm 91 was fulfilled in the angels caring for him. 
Today's sermon is not about sin management, where we try to remember all the rules and try hard to follow the rules. That's Phariseeism. That's not life in Christ. I think this story was recorded by three gospel writers because the writers want us to know that Jesus was tempted just like we are. In all the ways that we are vulnerable, just like we are. And it helps for us to know those places where we are vulnerable. And we need, uh, we need to know, you know, what is it in us that that temptation is appealing to? What is the need? And once we've identified the need, we can identify the lie that Satan's throwing at us and replace the lie with a promise from God's word. Really, that's what sin and walking with Jesus comes down to. Who are you going to believe? Who are you going to trust? Who will you love? This passage also points to the sinless Christ. If Jesus had failed this test, he would have disqualified himself as a savior who could die for others. But he was sinless and faultless. Jesus also had in mind, and it was always in his mind, his Father's will. But there was also in his mind his mission. I came to save a people. And scripture tells us that from eternity past, he knew who his people were. So he knew that he was coming to save you. I like to watch survivor shows. One of them is on the, the History Channel, SOS, How to Survive. So they described this guy that was stuck in the California desert and he had one bottle of water that was soon gone and after several days he was suffering from heat stroke and dehydration and he started to get dizzy and lose his vision and finally he just collapsed unconscious. The next morning though he, he managed to come to consciousness and mustered enough energy to keep on going for a few more hours where he was found and saved. When they asked him, how were you able to endure the desert all those days and keep on going? He said, I had a picture of my family and I would look at them and remember them. And I would say, I am enduring this desert for them. Jesus endured the desert for us. He passed the test that we constantly fail. May we thank him, praise him, and love him more than our sin. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that other things vie for our affections.
and we know which ones are constantly there. So, Lord, we look at our lives. We examine our pride, those areas of our flesh that are tempted, our quest for wealth or power, Lord, show us the need that these things are appealing to. Lord, show us the lie we are believing when we chase sin to fill it. Holy Spirit, bring to us your word to combat the lie. Lord, whatever it is, we surrender it to you. We picture you, Lord Jesus, and we just surrender it. You take it. And in its place, I will put on your righteousness. And walk according to who you say I am. Hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.